Last words can be interesting. Da Vinci said, I have offered, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Frank Sinatra said, last words, I'm losing. Benjamin Franklin, a dying man can do nothing easy. Actress Joan Crawford, while her housekeeper was praying for her, swore at her housekeeper and then said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Money can't buy life. One of my favorite theologians, Bob Marley, said that. I kid, one of my favorite musicians. Maybe to end on a low point, Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Sounds like a fool. Last words are, are interesting. There's, you, can, you can look up so many of them online and they're troubling, they're inspiring, they're infuriating. Not everyone voices their last words. But today what we're going to do is look at some of my very, very favorite last words that are written down, and they are the last written words of the Apostle Paul. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is what we're going to begin studying today, and I can't wait. I'm super motivated. I'm going to try to motivate you. 2 Timothy is referred to as the Apostle Paul's swan song. So he's facing execution. He is going to die. This is his uh, Roman imprisonment where he is going to be executed under Nero's reign. And so he's going to say important things. And we know because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to say super important things. He's going to say true things, right things, biblical things. And so I'm so motivated to talk about Second Timothy. And we will get to the text today, but we're going to have a really long introduction looking at different texts, just kind of uh, getting ourselves acclimated to this book. So if you're new today, it's our normal practice to study through books of the Bible. Sometimes we deviate from that and just look at given texts. But we're going to start a study of Second Timothy. And Second Timothy really ultimately is all about the church promoting and protecting the gospel. And so it's very easy for us to apply because it's all about our calling, even though we're not named Timothy, even though we're not in Ephesus. we are, I am a Christian pastor named Pat, not Timothy, uh, but it's easy to apply it. We don't live in Ephesus, but we do live in Omaha. And so until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, these will be very, very important words for any and every church, any and every pastor. And so what a great time for us to study this book to be motivated to have the main thing be the main thing, which is in fact the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm motivated, but I'm not sure if you're motivated. So I do have a list of seven motivations. I'm not a motivational speaker, but I am a pastor who cares, and I want you to be motivated about the gospel and studying this book. And so by way of introduction, we're going to look at these seven motivations. So by the end, I hope you're like falling off the front of your seat because you're on the edge of your seat and you're saying, please get to the text. And Lord willing, um, 
The plan is to actually look at the opening verses today, but we're going to do that sort of as a conclusion because I want to get you acclimated. I want to get you motivated. Uh, and so we can, we can really dive in. So the first motivation for studying second Timothy would be the fact that it's about the main thing. Second Timothy is about the main thing. The apostle Paul clearly uh, read 1 Corinthians. Oh, wait a second. He wrote 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that which is, which is what? Of first importance. In the, at the end of that book, first importance, what's the first importance? It's the gospel. Everything in the Bible is true. Everything in the Bible is important. But in the Bible where everything is true and everything is important, I like to say there's something that's called first importance. The main thing is the gospel. And Second Timothy reads like the Apostle Paul really believed what he said in First Corinthians 15. So he's taking that reality, the gospels of first importance, and he's taking that reality and he's calling a local church and a local church's pastor to do ministry like that. Don't just check that box and say, I know it's a first important, uh, first importance. Act like it as a church. Act like it as church members. Act like it as a pastor and pastors. It's the main thing. The gospel is. And gospel means good news. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news about what He has done through His perfect life, through His perfect death, through His perfect resurrection, through His perfect ascension. On behalf of sinners who trust in Him, it's good news to us. The bad news is we deserve condemnation. The good news is Jesus Christ paid the debt. Jesus Christ lived the life. Jesus Christ was raised and He Himself said, Though you die, you will live if you trust Me. And He's talking about resurrection life. Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, always lives. I prayed in light of this earlier. Always lives to make intercession on behalf of his people. That's that's ascended, high priestly, intercessory prayer kind of talk. It's the main thing. It's the best thing. It's the good thing. It's the ultimate good. It's the good news. And in this letter, 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul clearly acts like he believes it's true. Let's just sample it a little bit to get a, to get a flavor. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Just a sampling of, of gospel goodness. It says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How about verse 9? How great is this? Who saved us. That's gospel talk. He delivered us. He sets us free. We're enslaved to sin. And through his redemptive work, he buys us out of the slave market of sin. He sets us free. He saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, right? All this, all this grace talk, this giving talk, he, he gave us in Christ. So we don't earn it. He gives it to us. Why? Because of the gospel work of Christ. He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who, through his gospel work in context, who abolished death and brought life. That would be eternal life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. And that's just one little sampling. He, he's just going to keep saying things like this. Even to motivate, to motivate Timothy, he's going to keep saying things like this. And so if you sit down and read Second Timothy, it's not that hard. It's four chapters. 
you sit down and, and, and you just pay attention, okay, what are the main themes? What just keeps coming up again and again and again and again? Not always through the same exact words. It doesn't always explicitly say gospel, but it's gospel everywhere. It, 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 it's, it's from start to finish. The whole thing is about the gospel and the priority of the gospel. Second Timothy helps us to see that the church is called to promote and protect the gospel. It's about the main thing. And I love focusing on the main thing. It's one of the reasons I love this book. So I sat down with my, you know, my ESV study journal and I just have sat there who knows how many times over the years even and how many hours and just, you know, circling gospel words, gospel themes, seeing the connection, seeing the repetition. You could do so as well. And you walk away saying, gospel, 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 gospel. What does someone say on their deathbed? to a church? What do they say on their deathbed to a fellow pastor? Gospel, 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 gospel is what it is. It's about the good one who brings good news to sinners. Okay, let's move on. Speaking of the main thing, another motivator for studying Second Timothy. Number two, it is easy to drift it is easy to drift. So if the main thing is what this book is about, it also is addressing the matter of what we might call mission drift. And it's easy to get off course. And you know that you've heard the illustration before. You get a little bit off course. And before you know it, you're really, really off course. And so when we study this book, he's going to be addressing Timothy, who no doubt is at least struggling. The church at Ephesus, no doubt at least struggling with this real reality of mission drift. And think with me before we actually look at some of the words. Think with me how easy it is uh, to be distracted. Just think with me about all of the, the, the crises in, in our world, in our community, oh, in our families, in our lives, in our local church. There are so many challenges and so many crises and, and there are so many, let's now be positive, there are so many good things even. And so the world expects Omaha Bible Church to act a certain way and do certain things and provide certain services to people. The church has, the world has expectations of the church. They have expectations on what they don't want us to do. They have expectations on what they don't want us to say. They have expectations about what they want us to do and what they want us to say. Uh, we all as church members, we have our own issues and our own problems and we would really like our problems solved. I know I would. And sometimes I want the church to solve my problems, even though the Bible never tells the church how to solve my problems. I, I'm always, you know, looking for someone to help me. And so there's pressure that way. There are all kinds of pressures. And before you know it, we're not about the main thing. We're doing this good thing, or maybe this bad thing. Maybe because of persecution, we're doing this, this thing over here. And before you know it, we've drifted away from what we were called to do. Timothy would have faced it in Ephesus. We face it in Omaha, Nebraska, and beyond. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy. How about chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 8, then we'll look at chapter 1, just as a sampling of things. So amidst the social issues and the needs and desires and opinions and problems, I think the church should do this. I think the church should do that. Why is the church doing this? Why isn't it doing that? I think the 
And it goes on and on. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8? In, in, the, in the face of the, the, the danger of drifting, remember Jesus Christ. Probably my favorite three words in the whole book. Remember Jesus Christ. What a crazy thing to have to say to a Christian pastor. No, maybe it's not a crazy thing to have to say to a Christian pastor. What a crazy thing to have to say to the church at Ephesus, who he's pastoring. No, maybe not a crazy thing. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't crazy when he gave us the Lord's Supper and said what? Do this in remembrance of me. Well, why would we need to do that? We're Christians. Yeah. Christians even forget Christ. Why are we even doing the things we're doing? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Let's, let's keep going beyond the three words, but I like it summarized in the, in the three words. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I can't wait to get to that text. Timothy needed to remember the main thing, and the main thing is not a thing, it's a person. The good news work of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't forget. How about chapter 1? If we go back there, verse 6. And we're just going to look at a couple of samplings here. But if you read the whole book, you see Timothy is struggling. And that reflects uh, the life of the church. So apparently the church is struggling with keeping the main thing the main thing. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame. Timothy, you, you, that, that, that gospel flame needs to burn brighter than it is right now. Uh, you, we need to get, we, we need to fan the flame and stoke the fire, if you will, because this is the main most important thing. And apparently there's some flickering. Apparently it's not burning bright like it needs to be burning bright. You're distracted, you're afraid, you're forgetful, whatever it might be. Paul saying to Timothy, fan into flame what? The gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. No doubt he is talking about being called, gifted by God to be a Christian pastor in a Christian church where the main thing is the gospel. You need to have the, 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 your heart's fire stoked about what the whole thing is actually about. Timothy, let's, let, let, by way of application for us, but to Timothy and you'll get the idea. Timothy, you're not a life coach. Even though church members might want you to be. Even though the culture in Ephesus, Ephesus might want you to be. Timothy, you're not a life coach. Timothy, you're not a marriage expert. Timothy, you're not a political pundit. Timothy, you're not the guy who has all of the answers. That's important. If if you ask me questions about things that aren't Bible things and you don't hear me say it quite often, I don't know. Something's probably wrong. I try to be an expert in one thing, and that's hard enough. I, 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 I don't know the answers to lots of questions. But we're kind of at a place, even in Christian culture, where we think somehow the pastor knows all the answers to all the things, and he's some kind of functional savior. But when you focus on all of the things, you don't focus on the thing. 
And just as a reminder, maybe if I can, in, in the spirit of Jay Gresham Machen, since um, this is the 100-year anniversary of the book, the classic book, Christianity and Liberalism. Mike Holloway taught a whole class about Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, so 100 years ago, writes that book. And a big thing that Machen has to address is this. The theological liberals are using the Bible to answer all of life's questions. That's classic, traditional, theological liberalism. Because they're not focusing on the main thing that the Bible actually does address. Your sin and your need for a Savior who died a substitutionary, atoning death. It's about redemption. So, just historically, at least in that little microcosm... The conservative Bible-believing Christians aren't the people who think somehow the pastor has all the answers and the Bible has answers to every question anyone would ever have. The Bible-believing, committed Christians were the ones who were saying, the Bible is true in everything it addresses. First and foremost, it's about redemption. It's about salvation from sin. I think we need to remember that because too often times we end up acting like, even though we don't mean to, we Bible believers act like the theological anti-supernaturalists when we think the church is going to solve all of our problems. No, but I can help you with your biggest problem. But for the other things, you might need a life coach. You might need to subscribe to Consumer Reports. You get the idea. You, you, you might need to go talk to an expert in that field. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Let's move on. Hopefully we're going to be motivated to have the main thing be the main thing. And Second Timothy is going to help us, if you will, to tether our, ourselves to the gospel chair. Strap in. So no matter what happens, I'm not getting up from this chair until I'm called home. Another motivator would be, number three, 2 Timothy is perfect for Advent. I say that with a smirk and, and sarcasm because we're almost ready to enter into the Advent season. Advent is, I think it's four Sundays before Christmas, and so it, it's going to be a Christmassy kind of season for us in 2 Timothy. I mean, I mean, what about Silent Night um, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I mean, what about those two things don't go together? Well, that was my attempt at humor, so I, I, you should go somewhere else for your comedy as well. I'm just proving the point. Yeah, that pastor, he knows a lot of theology and Bible verses, but he's not very funny. Well, okay, I agree. But, you know, if... And I, I do promise to, to preach at least one Christmas sermon. Okay, so I'm committed because Christmas Eve is on the 24th and so it'd be kind of awkward if I didn't. Kidding aside, and I, I do promise to do that, but joking aside, if we don't have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have any reason for the season. Okay? And Second Timothy does talk about his coming. In fact, we even read it earlier. It does say, how about back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 10, which now has been manifested through the appearing, through the advent, through the arrival of our Savior, Christ Jesus. 
It does go there. It might not be the text we look at on Christmas Eve. But it really is important that he comes because we don't have the gospel unless he comes. I'd better move on. You all look like you're ready to do the next one. Another motivator for studying 2 Timothy is because it is fuel on our fire. It is fuel on our fire. I've heard theologians and scholars say things like, people start by believing the gospel. Then, and, and, and when they believe it, they proclaim it. They're all about it. And, and then before you know it, they, they do things like they assume the gospel. And then before you know it, there's drift that happens. And so they started believing it. So they preached it. They were all about it. And then before you know it, they, they assume the gospel. They still believe it, but they assume it. And then before you know it, they forget the gospel. And then before you know it, it's not that hard to deny the gospel. And I don't know if that's true or not, but when you look at denominations and you look at the life of local churches and you look at generation to generation, it doesn't always work that way. But I, right now, praise be to God, think that us studying the gospel and the need to be all about it, all in, protecting, proclaiming in Omaha and beyond, I think it's just going to stoke the fire of this local congregation. I know I can't speak for everybody. I don't know everybody in closely and personally, but, but from those of you who I do know, we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel and we like to proclaim the gospel. We like to hear about the gospel, Christians and non-Christians. Both, we like to read the gospel, the Bible in a gospel-centered kind of way. So I, I think this is going to be a great study. I just want to say, let me, let me just stoke the fire. Let me just pour more fuel on the, on, on the fire because I are, I, I don't think this is a problem. I think this is a great time to do this because it's like excel still more. So just so you know, I'm not secretly just waiting to get to chapter four so I can scold you. I don't have some secret motive. I mean, this, this is the, this is the time to do this because actually I think things are healthy. And so let's be healthier, but I'm, I'm not just like, Oh man, I just can't wait to scold them because they have a desire to have their ears tickled because they don't want to hear the gospel anymore. We should look at that passage, by the way. Uh, you, you'll, you'll find it interesting. I don't think it applies to Omaha Bible Church. So, uh, But let's go to chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. So getting toward the end, Timothy, why do you need to be resolute? Why do you need to be committed? Why do you need to be all in, locked in, and Timothy, not just you, because you're pastoring a congregation. So everything in the letter generally speaking, is meant for him to hear yes, but then for him to share with the congregation. How about chapter 4, verse 3? For the time is coming. I think it's, if I recall, I'll double check later when we get there. It's a season kind of thing. The time is coming when people, probably church people, will not endure sound teaching, healthy teaching, gospel teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. That would be in context. The truth about Jesus. The truth about the gospel. And wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. A gospel preacher. Fulfill your ministry. So it, it's a real problem. It could be a real problem that we have. 
But as it is today, I don't plan to be a scolder in Second Timothy. I plan to be an encourager. I plan to be as encouraging as I possibly can to help further equip you to be motivated to be promoting and protecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the season we're in. I love the season we're in. So I'm motivated to study this book together. Number five, another motivator would be for studying 2 Timothy. It's great for the new, and it's great for the, I shouldn't say old, mature. (laughs) Okay? It's great for the new, and it's great for the old. It's great for the new, and it's great for the mature. Thankfully, at Omaha Bible Church today, there are people who are new to the whole Bible thing, the whole reality of Christian living, Christian church, biblical church, and there are those of you who've been engaged for decades and decades and decades. Second Timothy is going to be great. It's going to be great because anybody who wants to learn about the need for a local congregation and its pastors to be all in, white knuckle, committed to proclaiming the good news and protecting it from those who will oppose it, you can get it. You can see it. I'll try my best to keep pointing it out. And if you want to learn, I'll do anything I can do to help you to learn. But if you already know the stuff and you've already studied Greek and you can already diagram sentences and all that stuff and original languages, it'll be profound for you as well. It just doesn't get old. It doesn't get old at all. You're like, oh, this is awesome. I love this. I love learning about the gospel. I love learning about the height and depth and and the significance and the grandeur of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we're not all pastors. But I think by way of application, 2 Timothy 3.17 is relevant to all of us who are Christians, right? 3.16, we know all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then it says in 17, so that the man of God, that's technical for a preacher, for a pastor, for Timothy, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And it, it, the, the imagery is borrowed from from... Sailing, it's nautical terminology, that, that your ship will be outfitted, it will be equipped to handle anything and everything you're going to encounter, even in the roughest seas. Adequate, equipped for any kind of sailing is the idea. But remember, Timothy's a pastor of a congregation, he's supposed to teach them the things that Paul is teaching him. It will adequately equip us for all good gospel works, for gospel ministry, for promoting and protecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's for you if you're long in the faith, new in the faith, We're going to be able to see it and we're going to be able to be equipped as a church, young and old, to do great gospel ministry, not because we're great, but because Christ is and the need is great. It's going to be wonderful. 
I, I, I'm so excited about it. I'm so motivated about it. Clarity and conviction about the gospel is what's going to happen in the weeks ahead. Another reason, another motivator, number six, and then we'll do seven, and then we will get to the text. Number six, it's easy to apply. Second Timothy is easy to apply. So all of the Bible is true, as I like to say. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture. So it's all true, and then it's all to be applied in some way or another. It equips us. We could go elsewhere where the Apostle Paul says, even regarding Old Testament things, they're written for your instruction. So it's all true, all applicable, but some texts of Scripture, some books of the Bible are hard to apply. Because there's so much distance, right? So we, we need to study Exodus because the New Testament assumes we know about Exodus, and there's so much imagery that's borrowed and used, and so we need to do it. It is applicable, but it's pretty hard to do in one sense because, okay, we're not the nation of Israel, we're not Israelites, we're not enslaved in Egypt, uh, we're not delivered through the parting of the Red Sea. We don't receive divine direct revelation from God like Moses did. Uh, and the list could go on and on and on. We're not, we, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have priests. We don't have the sacrifices. We don't, we, it's a lot harder to apply a book like that. Second Timothy, not very hard. It's not very hard at all. Okay, Paul's an apostle and apostles go off the scene. But he's an apostle pastor, if you will. And he's passing the baton to Timothy, a pastor. Well, I know a pastor. I can relate to that. Uh, and he's pastoring a church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, in a metropolitan city called Ephesus, uh, pastoring sinners who've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And uh, Ephesus is not a Christian city. And you get the idea. This isn't going to be hard. You know, the names will be changed to protect the innocent. I mean, there's a little gap there, but there's not much gap. This is easy to apply. You're you're going to, even maybe even this morning when we read chapter four, where a time will come when they will, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Tell me good. Tell me I'm a nice person. Tell me I'm good. Tell me God likes me because I'm good. All this, whatever it might be. I don't need the gospel because God helps those who help themselves. Tell me more things like that, pastor. You, you were all reading it. Lots of you at least were reading it going, that sounds like today. I left a church like that or I grew up in a church like that, or I, I, I want to share that passage with friends of mine. This is, this is going to be easy to apply. Maybe it'll be too easy. It's not going to be hard to bridge the gaps. Let's move on to a final one. Number seven. Motivation number seven. I hope you're on your, the edge of your seat. Second Timothy, I'm motivated because... It's gripping. It's compelling. It's gripping. It, the, the, the language that it's used, the urgency that's, that, that's emphasized, the need that's there. There's a real crisis, and the real crisis might be outside the church. It might sometimes be sneaking into the church. And then he uses all this great, grand imagery, whether it's a nautical kind of imagery or warfare uh, imagery or medical imagery or sports kind of imagery. It's, it's, com- it's just compelling. It's just gripping. For example, let's just sample it and then we'll move on to the actual 
verses we need to look at. How about chapter 2, then a couple of sections from chapter 4. And these are things that you you probably have heard before, even if you didn't grow up in a church. They're borrowed from the Bible because they're so graphic, and they're so compelling, and they're so gripping. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10? 2.10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That, that right there has my attention. That, that's gripping. It's so gripping that it might be offensively gripping to some of you. Paul saying to Timothy, you know how you need to think about pastoral ministry and suffering and the hardship and the good times and the bad times? You know what? I do all things for the sake of the elect. Like it or not like it, that's gripping. I'm like, the Bible says that? That that should be one of the, the, the fueling factors for Omaha Bible Church doing gospel ministry in Omaha, Nebraska, because we do all things for the sake of the elect? Hmm, tell me more. I, I want to know about that. How about chapter 4? Let's look at a couple of of gripping kinds of sections from chapter 4. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, this is the kind of stuff you've heard before, even outside of the church. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his advent. All who have loved his appearing. This is not just for me as an apostle. This is for all Christians. So I I, I like the imagery that he uses, because I like sports. Uh, I also love the theology. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm an apostle. This is for every Christian. Okay, good. How about one more sampling, and then we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I love verse 17. But the Lord stood by me, and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's a good graphic. And he's not Daniel, but he's using this great imagery. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he's not even done yet. I'm like, oh, I want to know more about that. To be bold in our Christian witness, no matter what happens, tell me more. I I, I want that to, to rub off on me like he's having it rub off on Timothy and then the church at Ephesus. That's bold stuff. How about if we look at verses one and two? Okay. I hope you're at least semi-motivated, um, to say, all right, let's learn more next week. Opening verses say this, 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's start with Christ Jesus. 
Christ means, hopefully you know by now if you've been here more than five times, Christ means Messiah. Messiah means king. And a good king who's not a corrupt king is going to provide, protect, make sure his people's needs are met. And the imagery is so helpful because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. So throughout the Old Testament, we have all kinds of kings. We have bad kings. We have good kings. We've got some of the best kings who are also failures. But they're all designed to lead us toward we need the King. We need the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will not be corrupt in the least bit. We need such a deliverer, protector, provider who will make sure that his people's needs are always met and there are no ill motives. In Christianity, we say Jesus is the Christ. David was a Christ. We, we like him, but we know better than to put our confidence in him. Saul, bad king, we know better than to put our confidence. You, you get the idea. He's, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the Christ, okay? So then he's Jesus Christ. Jesus, we learned in Matthew 1, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It means God saves. So it, it, the two overlap and go together. It, it, we were talking about the one born in Bethlehem. We're talking about the one who grew up in Nazareth. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. And he is the king, the Christ, the ultimate one, the ultimate high priest as well. We could go there. But just notice he says, Jesus Christ. Have that in mind because that really carries the theological freight, if you will, when he says Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle of... Nero, Paul, an apostle of, you could fill in the name of all these kinds of rulers. No. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one who represents another and carries the authority of the one they represent. So, how about this? Second Timothy is red letter. For all of you people who like red-letter Bibles, it is red-letter. Every sermon I preach when I put my, my notes together and put them in my iPad, every sermon I preach, whether it's Exodus or Second Timothy or the Gospel according to Matthew, my preaching text is in, guess what color? It's in red. Because all Scripture is inspired by God and prophet. You get the idea. So when Paul speaks to Timothy, it's not a matter of, well, who do you think you are? I only believe Jesus. Actually, theologically, biblically, to believe Jesus would also then have you believing a true apostle. That's why apostleship is such a big deal. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you know what? What I say to you, Timothy, is binding. It's as if Jesus himself said these things. Now, sometimes Paul says, I didn't, I, I, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say this, but I do. And that can even be tricky because you know what? If he's speaking as an apostle, it's because Jesus didn't speak it during his lifetime, but I'm elaborating and I'm his apostle. And so, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Oh, remember Paul. Sometimes we study a book like this and we, it's all about Paul, 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 Paul. And if you were an outsider, you might think, Father, Son, and Paul, right? 
Like, the, like Muslims, uh, like, like um, Muslims who think the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. Well, that might make sense in an ancient world where you don't speak the language and don't read, and you go into old churches and you interpret the meaning of that religion based upon the paintings, and you go, oh, Christians must believe in Father, Son, we see, we, we understand, and, and Mary. And so, today, lots of Muslims, and if you read the Quran, Father, Son, and Mary. No Christian has ever believed that. I digress. Don't make the Bible, don't make Second Timothy to be a big Paul worship fest. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the one triune God. The Apostle Paul says in First Timothy, I'm chief of sinners. Or your translation might say foremost of sinners. That would be First Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. He's the former persecutor of the church in Acts chapter 9. But do know that you have every reason to conclude that he has the authority of Jesus when he's speaking as an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What? You got my attention. Whatever you say is of utmost importance because Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Not because he's perfect, but he represents the perfect one. Let's keep going. Then it says... By the will of God, he, he knows the sovereignty of God. He, he, he's, he's committed. By the will of God, I am who I am because of the will of God. I couldn't have dreamt this stuff up, made this stuff up. I was hostile against Christians before. By the will of God, that's why I am who I am and do what I do according to the promises. The idea would be eternal promises. The idea would be promises beforehand, the will, the decree, the divine purpose, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. More gospel talk, right? I am who I am, and it has to do with the, the will of God, and it has to do with the promises of God uh, regarding life, regarding eternal life, final, ultimate life, to use the big word, uh, eschatological life, right? The life that Adam couldn't secure or didn't secure, but Christ did secure I'm, th- I'm an apostle of that. I'm uh, just ever so quickly to digress. I'm not an apostle of trying to, to, to make this the new Jerusalem. I, I'm not trying to help you so you can figure out how to fix all the problems of Ephesus. I've called to be the unique authority when it comes to the life. The life that, what does he say? Of the life that is in Christ Jesus which is a cool way to word things, the life that's in Him. Where do you go for eternal life? You go to Him for eternal life. Why would you go to Him for eternal life? Let's play the, the, the life the life that is in Christ Jesus a little bit differently. So the life is in Him. That's true. So you turn to Him. You trust in Him. And, and His perfect work will be credited to you. Oh, the life that's in Him. How can the life be in Him? The life can be in Him because He secured the life by what he's done. And Second Timothy is going to talk about that. He's the Lord, the giver of life. He's the author of life. But he gained eternal life on behalf of his people, those he represents. He's the one, to borrow from his interaction with the attorney, who did this so that we can live. Life, that kind of life. Remember the account? What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, to cut to the chase, says, Obey the law and you will live. Well, no one can. 
the life that is in Christ Jesus. The book is going to be about that. I'm that kind of a, kind of apostle. How great is that? He secures ultimate end-time life for his people. Paul is that kind of apostle. And then finally he says, To Timothy, my beloved child. And Timothy is not his child, but he is spiritually speaking. To Timothy, before I'm martyred under Nero's reign. Nero's reign, I think, ends in 68 AD. So it's getting close to the end. Sometime before 68 AD, he writes this to Timothy. Pastoring, according to chapter, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, who's pastoring in Ephesus, Asia Minor, known for wealth, known for sorcery, known for idol worship. The temple of Artemis is in Ephesus at the time, one of the then seven wonders of the world. It's a booming place. It's a happening place. It's a place of culture. It's a place of commerce. It's a place of religion. Pastoring there, you know what you need to be committed to. You know what you need to do. You know what you need to be devoted to. Stoke the flames of your heart's fire. The gospel. That's what Ephesus actually needs. Grace, mercy, so free gift, then withholding what you deserve in mercy. And I know this is a stylistic greeting, but it's carrying all kinds of theological freight, right? Grace, mercy, and peace. We could talk about that for a whole sermon series, right? That you have peace with God now. You didn't have it before. Why? Because of God's grace. Why? Because of God's mercy in Christ. And it says, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'll just keep coming back to those same kinds of themes. By contrast, what we didn't read in the opening verses. Dear Timothy, I urge you and the church at Ephesus to do all that you can to transform the societal structures of Ephesus. After all, the Artemis cult is blasphemous, harmful, and does not lead to happiness or human flourishing. Those things might all be true. But that's not what the church at Ephesus has been called to do. It's not what Timothy as a Christian pastor is called to do. Other people can deal with the other issues. We can support them in dealing with the other issues. But the church, for the church to act like the church, is going to be all about remembering Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. You know what people really need more than they need anything else? They need to have the absolute certain promise based upon history. Resurrection. That's what they need. And if the church doesn't preach that, no one will. No one will. Great days ahead to study this book. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... The fact that you're the God of history, that you have been working, that you are working, and even right now, we're not here according to to bad luck or good luck or some kind of -of out-of-control circumstance. We know that you are the God of history who is the author of history. And what we want to do, my desire as a pastor, my desire as a Christian, hopefully we can all agree our desire would be to 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we would be committed to protecting the good news of salvation in Him and we would be committed to proclaiming it for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.